welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Last Thanksgiving, I received an email from Dr. Belma Andrick, the Chief Medical Officer of the Health District of Palm Beach County in Florida, who was my guest in 2017 on a podcast we did about a pilot program where recovery support teams make house calls for eight days following an overdose to deliver Suboxone to OD victims and evaluate them on the clinical opiate withdrawal scale. Dr. Andrick wanted to let me know that the work that was done on that program, along with programs featured in our podcast series, had inspired a new initiative in Palm Beach, an addiction stabilization unit in the ER. Today, she joins us once again to introduce us to this innovative new program. I caught up with Dr. Andrick and her team just a couple of weeks after the ribbon-cutting ceremony to officially open the ASU. The first time we met was nearly three years ago, and you were rolling out this unique pilot program that offered Suboxone to overdose victims in the ER based upon the Yale study. So tell us about what you learned from that pilot program that led us to where we are today. Thank you, Greg. Uh, this emergency room actually is result of partnership between three agencies, um, JFK North Hospital, uh, Health District Palm Beach County, uh, our organization, and the local county, Palm Beach County um, organization. So uh, you're right. What started as a pilot in 2017 um, that has grown from 30 patients that we treated in a pilot to over 600 patients that since that time we treated in our outpatient MAT program. But also all along, we were constantly looking for more sustainable uh, solution for the whole community and not only patients who go in this one emergency room and then warm handoff to outpatient treatment. In that uh, brainstorming between those three uh, large agencies in our community, uh, we came with the idea that instead of having each individual emergency room developing expertise and personnel who knows how to treat addiction, uh, not only during the overdose, but then also when they're admitted to the floor, we came to, uh, with the idea that we will uh, try to open one specialized emergency room and hospital who know all along how to deal with patients suffering from this serious illness. And that's how the Addiction Stabilization Unit got started. So this is actually a model made of any other medical complex illness, such as stroke or heart attack or trauma. And having in the community one specialized center uh, that fire rescue would bypass uh, closest emergency room and transfer them exactly here, where experts would wait for them 24-7 and actually know what to do with those patients. Instead of treat them and treat them, uh, they are willingly accepting them and providing the most accurate evidence-based medicine for treatment of their illness. So let's describe, first of all, let's describe the, the facility. You've got the ER, and then you've got some beds also. That's correct. So those patients are accepted to the regular emergency room. 
but then this hospital have has opened like additional 10 uh, beds who whom we call addiction stabilization unit. So those beds are reserved only for the patients who are transferred here with substance use disorder. This gave us opportunity that we keep those patients a little bit longer and we have a chance that this addiction team wrap, wraps around the patient. So if I go to trauma center for the trauma, I will have trauma surgeons see me very early in my recovery of my trauma, right? So no different than that, we will put them this, like in trauma bay, we would put them here in addiction stabilization unit and then team of experts will start treatment, including very early on introduction of medication-assisted treatment, um, such as Suboxone, um, because most of those patients will be diagnosed with moderate to severe substance use disorder. And with that diagnosis, most of them will be highly recommended to initiate Suboxone right away to, to, to really break that vicious circus of withdrawal and drug use. So if they receive Suboxone early on, we have better chances for them to be more receptive in all further recommendation of addiction, such as connecting to higher level level of care that will treat their illness. Dr. Courtney Ruling shared the ASU staffing model with me. What we have on staff with our uh, in the addiction stabilization unit is emergency physicians who are getting additional training in Suboxone. And actually, um, medication-assisted treatment was actually developed by ASAM for primary care providers. In, an, in a hospital setting, emergency room doctors have a primary care kind of background. They just do it in the inpatient side because they're able to take care of a wide variety of illnesses in an emergency setting. So we believe that actually substance use should not be any different than if you go to the emergency room for bronchitis or uh, you need CPR. And so uh, physicians who have broad training, like family medicine physicians, internists, emergency room physicians should be able to follow these protocols for substance use disorder. There will never be enough mental health providers, so we need the help of our primary care colleagues, including emergency physicians, to do that. So in terms of the addiction stabilization unit, they have specialized nurses that get extra training in this. They have regular emergency doctors who actually rotate through the program and take care of these patients just like they would any other bay. So if, the, if you were taking, if, if you're an emergency doctor covering the stroke unit, maybe the next day you're covering the emergency unit. So it's no different than really any other chronic illness in terms of the hospital setting. Um, it is nice to have some expertise as le in leadership. And uh, I think we've been fortunate here. I'm an addiction medicine board certified psychiatrist who uh, has helped with some initiatives here to get them going in terms of driving our evidence-based care. That does not mean that uh, regular physicians can't learn this and start to participate in it so that we can reach the masses. On the outpatient side, we, we have uh, one LCSW or LMHC or psychologist, any role, uh, which they provide therapy and case management services and there's a, they, they each follow at least 50, around 50 patients as their max, uh, all of which some are doing well, some are not doing as well. So they have a, a various caseload in terms of severity. And so every time we increase, we, we hire a new therapist or a social, uh, social worker or a psychologist. Um, and then we have uh, two, we, we just uh, posted a position. We have a, a nurse and we have under a nurse an MA or an LPN. Uh, to assist with kind of processing patients. We have a registration desk. And then in terms of physicians, uh, for us, we, I, I'm, I'm working in the clinic actively as an addiction psychiatrist, but I have a psychiatric PA uh, because we believe that while they're getting their substance use care, they should also be able to get psychiatric care. And then we've also incorporated two primary care nurse practitioners who also can handle substance use and they work alongside all of us so that if the patient has 
a medical problem that day and they're in they're here for their substance use care, both can be serviced by the same provider. So uh, we've tried to develop a system where um, physicians of all backgrounds are involved with this. In the future, we'd love to have an OBGYN who can help us with moms who have substance use care. And that's kind of where we're going with our team development, if you will. But um, everybody works together. And I think the most important thing in substance use care is to work with a team. It's a very complex illness with lots of facets. The team not only provides different service lines, but we actually support each other. So um, we're able to sort of provide unbiased, standardized care, as sometimes it can be difficult because sometimes it's it's a difficult patient in front of you or uh, you have certain feelings about it and the team actually keeps each other accountable. So there's more to the team than just having a bunch of disciplines. It's also we develop a way to communicate with each other to make sure that that patient in front of us, no matter how we feel about them or somebody feels about them, somebody else is holding you accountable. And I believe that provides the best care for a patient uh, in, in, a, in, in this setting. Ingrid Barlett outlines how patients are referred into the program. We have patients coming in here from referral from the primary care, which we try to prioritize because they're already patients of our, our system. So it's a referral from their primary care from provider primary is one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it kind of helps because we have their medical history already in it. So we just um, adding on from the patients themselves. That means, hey, I, I have a, the friends, friends and family. I have a friend and I saw that he's doing really good and I don't know what was he doing. So I asked him like, hey, what are you doing? And he said, hey, I'm going to the clinic. <laughs> so can I go? Say, hey, there's a number, call the number, and um, they'll, they'll take you no matter what. So no matter what, as far as insurance is concerned, if they've got private insurance, that's fine. Medicaid, that's fine. If they don't have insurance, that's fine too. Well, we prioritize every, everybody without insurance and all the indigent patients who are uh, in community because we do not want to dupl- duplicate services. So we are kind of like their safety net. So if we cannot connect them, so for example, you come to me and say, hey, I have a Medicaid, but I would really like your services. And I say, well, you're here, we're gonna assess you, our doctor will see you, see where you're at. And uh, while you're here, we're gonna connect you with the different services in the community. So whoever is free uh, uh, connects the, uh, the patient with the services in the community. And we have, we created really good uh, connection with the other services. So we bridge them till they have a time for another appointment with the set provider. And then uh, we also follow up next week. Hey, did you go? Do you have appointment? Do you have the medicine? Oh, and there is a yes or no question. If they didn't come, they come back. We'll try it again. If you didn't like that provider, we'll try something else. And if you did, great. We're glad we can help. Dr. Rowling walks us through what happens when someone comes into the ER that needs help. When someone overdoses, fire rescue ideally takes them to the specialized center of care as long as they're stable. They're stabilized in a medical setting, just like they would in any other medical setting, make sure that they're breathing, all their basics are taken care of. Once stabilized, um, it's identified and the patient is brought over to the addiction stabilization unit um, to be assessed. The reason that's important is because the people in the addiction stabilization unit uh, will continue to de- develop this, but already have, they have a, a different feeling and sort of skill level in engaging these patients, which is very difficult. After Narcan, patients often feel really bad and they're not 
always completely there. So they, they are developing that expertise to this day, but continuing to get better at engaging these patients and not just talking about how do you feel? What are your vitals? Moving to the next question of what's been going on with you, having a social worker really assess them in a deeper way for underlying issues, as well as case management issues. And when I say that, how's it going? Are you homeless? Are you having transportation problems? Do you have anyone in the family who can be here with you? So really taking a deeper dive into the patient than they typically do in an emergency room setting. Um, And then the nurses also have an expertise in assessing them and helping inform the physician or provider as to what what is the next step. So there are specific protocols that have been developed for the addiction stabilization unit so that the patient can be properly assessed, started on medication if, well, properly assessed, let me start over, properly diagnosed and properly connected with services that are appropriate for them, which oftentimes, as Dr. Andrick mentions, are medication-assisted treatment options. Um, So recommendations are made, and then the patient is brought into the team because they are really the biggest member of the team to say, what are you willing to do? So that's the other piece of it is that it's not, you know, recommendations are given and patient autonomy is respected. Um, But in the past, there were no options really for a lot of these patients. So the option was to discharge them. And in this way, they stay. Um, If they're willing to stay, they'll keep them till the next day that the clinic is open in the morning so that they don't sort of go back out with nothing and have to sort of figure it out. A lot of these patients will go back out and use again frequently in the past, and we're trying to sort of keep them there and see if they can uh, feel comfortable enough and feel safe enough that they're willing to give a try, you know, give give an outpatient approach a try. Historically, that's been one of the challenges. Mm-hmm. They've bolted out of the ED sure. and uh, gone right back out and used, and so it's kind of a revolving door. So um, is has there been thought um, to using any leverage such as the Baker Act? to keep people there. Patients' rights have to be uh, respected, but they're, what they're, if there's a clinical reason to Baker Act them, that is done, but that's a separate reason. Anyone with a substance use disorder has a little bit of a heightened risk for uh, harm to self or others, but um, it's, it cannot be the isolated reason that they get Baker Acted. So that doesn't come into play here? Well, it's assessed. I mean, if that's something going on, we did see a, a good percentage of some of our early patients have met criteria for that. And that is also approached, which is why we also have to involve the psychiatric department in the hospital in this work, just like we do the hospitalists. Um, but there is a skill set to uh, engaging very difficult patients. And it's very well known in the medical community. It's called motivational interviewing. Um, and it's not something that everybody understands. I think everyone in medical school should learn how to do motivational interviewing, but it's not uh, as traditional as sort of this paternalistic approach to giving people recommendations and forcing them into treatment. Um, if you don't mind, I would like my colleague Elaine, uh, who's an expert in this, to speak a little bit about what that means and why it's important that an, an, an addiction stabilization unit or emergency room that's involved with substance use care really adopts this. Um, As a psychiatrist, I always tell trainees with me, you're not going to learn most therapy. Most of you are not going to be psychiatrists. If there was one thing that they could teach in medical schools very aggressively to all doctors, it's motivational interviewing, which is just an approach actually to meeting a patient where they're at. It could apply to uh, obesity. It could apply to smoking, but it's an approach that it, it leads, helps it's much more effective at leading people to change than just saying you better do this or you'll die because that we know from studies that doesn't actually work. 
So I'm going to hand it over to Elaine Esplin to explain a little bit more about that. Elaine? Hi, Greg. So motivational interviewing is a technique that's used a lot in addiction. Um, we know basically when people are told what to do as addicts and alcoholics, we like are defiant on principle. <laughs> so don't tell me what to do. I'll do the exact opposite. Motivational interviewing engages the patient where they're at and assesses their willingness to change or where they even are on the change scale. Um, and by doing that, you, you, you dig a little bit deeper with the patient to find out what is the motivation to change? Is it that you just had an overdose? Is it that uh, maybe you're tired of being homeless? Maybe you're having relationship issues? You know, so we try and hone in on what the motivation might be to change and see where they're willing to change. How far are they willing to go? What kind of change would they like to see? Do they even know the kinds of changes? And explore that with them. When you go to an emergency room, Greg, any, for any reason, they don't ask you where you're going to go. They say, hi, Mr. McNeil, we're going to put you in this bed. And what happens? You usually say, okay, I'm here for help. You told me I need to be here. So we don't ask permission necessarily. We're trying to foster that you don't ask permission to go to the ASU. The ASU, the Addiction Stabilization Unit, is an emergency room. They can treat, they can give you IV fluids, they can do basic medical care, but it has the additional addiction training. So the idea for the ER is to identify anybody who might benefit from this, whether they came in for overdose or maybe they're there because uh, they have a very infected wound or abscess from using and they weren't really overdosed, but the nurse says, you know, we're going to put them over here because we have people there that are kind of developing and, and maintaining expertise in how to engage this patient. Because even though they're here for an abscess, we're pretty darn sure it's due to their use because Mr. Smith has been here multiple times for his use. So the idea is not necessarily just to say, well, let me have your permission to go to this place. It's an area of the emergency room um, and they can maintain abscess care there and be, a, you know, their substance use can be addressed. Um, you know, 10 years from now, I hope every ER is very comfortable with motivational interviewing and, and getting people to change. But for now, the expertise is concentrated. In terms of the clinic, once they enter um, our program, we've seen about a 50% retention rate over one year's time. That's what I can say, which is aligned with uh, recent studies at the NIH. Retention means they're coming back. That's what it means. Um, we need better measures for outcomes in the addiction medicine world uh, to start following and leveling up our care, but we're proud of that. So for every two patients after a year, about one of them is still with us and we've lost one, but uh, you know, we're trying to start to track readmissions because we also know that many patients come in, they're doing great for two weeks, all of a sudden they get incarcerated from a warrant that was out, they may be gone for six months and all of a sudden they're coming back. Uh, there's multiple situations. It's a very transient population at times. They're moving all over the country depending on their family situation. So there are lots of factors, again, a complex factors that we have to figure out how to assess if they're actually truly leaving us or they're going to an, an equal and good level of care. I know, I know you're from Ohio. We recently sent a patient to an Ohio program because his family's there. He's reconnected with them. Is that a loss to treatment? No, that's just someone who sort of went back to his hometown and he's very happy to be there. And he finally felt capable because he's been sober for long enough to reach out to them. So um, there's lots of things that we have to start measuring, I think, in terms of outcomes. But retention wise, that's that's our retention, about 50 percent. And I really credit um, our clinical team, some of which are here in participating with that. Like Ingrid said, whether you have an MD behind your name, 
a licensed clinical social work, a PhD. If you have no training, but you're at the front desk, treatment starts with everybody, meaning uh, everybody's involved with engaging the patient, not just the providers. The nurses, um, sometimes it's Ingrid at the front desk just having a good talk with them. So we really want to adopt that across all service lines. So you recommend that they go to one of those 10 beds. What happens next once they settle in? They're assessed by a nurse. Like any ER visit, they're assessed by a nurse. A social worker comes in and starts talking to them about all their needs. And uh, after the nurse assessment, a doctor is informed of all of the nurses and therapists kind of recommendations. And then the doctor comes in and does a full assessment. And then their average stay once they're admitted is somewhere in the neighborhood of 24 to 36 hours. Is that what I read? Yes. Is that right? That seems right about now. right. Okay. Yeah. One of the surprising takeaways from the program was most who want help can begin on an outpatient basis. There's an interesting change that we're making. We certainly respect and honor the ASAM criteria and we do assessments for that. But what the ASAM criteria says is that you need to put them in the least restrictive, uh, appropriate level of care. That's a pretty vague statement. So um, traditionally, a lot of people would start on an inpatient level and you can justify higher levels of care. Um, But I believe that Oftentimes, most patients can be managed outpatient. That kind of came about by accident because in a public health setting, you often don't have the inpatient resources in terms of insurance and payers. So we had to take care of them in outpatient because there was nowhere else to send them. Um, When I was training, I would have started a lot of our early patients on an inpatient level, and I didn't have that option. So you do what you have to do. You make it work. And what we've learned is that many more people than we realize could actually manage on an outpatient loving level. And why that's beneficial is many of them, speaking to motivation, are not necessarily motivated to go inpatient. And if that's the only recommendation, you lose them. So what's really important is to say, listen, we can manage you here. We know that you need to work. You want to see your spouse. You want to take care of your kids. Um, so let's try this outpatient and see how you do with it before necessarily going to a higher level of care. With that being said, there are some patients that just have to have the inpatient services. But I'd like to compare this to hypertension. When you have a blood pressure problem, you don't go to inpatient first, stabilize it, and usually come outpatient unless it got really out of hand and you maybe were having some stroke-like symptoms. Most people go to their doctor and say, I'm having headaches, I don't feel good, Um, something's going on. Doctor says, look, your blood pressure is pretty out of control. Let's start some things now to see if we can get it under control sees them back. If it's still uncontrolled after multiple visits, maybe they get a specialist involved. If it's still under control, maybe then they send them to the hospital if there's a critical problem going on at that time. Um, We'd like to start to treat substance use similarly where to see if more patients can exist with this problem in a real world setting. Um, Many can't in the beginning and we work with services to get them to higher levels of care, but I think more can than we used to believe. And again, that will have to be data-driven, but it, it speaks to motivational interviewing because a lot of patients want help, but they're not ready to leave in a very abrupt way where they're at. Even if sometimes the clinical team thinks where they're at in terms of uh, where they're living or who they're engaging with is not the healthiest, that's where that person is that day. Who am I to say that they can't try it in this setting? I don't know that person, and I have a healthy respect for being having some expertise in addiction medicine, but in terms of a patient, I'm not them and I don't know 
what they're dealing with. So now let's pivot and talk a little bit about the success of the program. It's early on. You had the soft open, I'll call it, in October and the official ribbon cutting just a few weeks ago. Who would like to speak to some of our successes in the program? I'd like to turn this over to Callista, our LPN, who started with the program and, and let her speak about some of the things she's seen on the ground. Outstanding. Callista, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I have seen patients come in from a homeless state to find employment, housing, have treatment for hepatitis C, have medical treatment, dental treatment, uh, psychiatric treatment. I mean, really have their lives changed. Multiple patients actually have their lives changed. It's some, you know, to a harm reduction point that some that just really maybe continue to use, like Dr. Rowling said, once a month. But these are people that, like I said, were homeless at one point, but now are able to maintain a job and housing. People that have come in miserable. The encouragement every time, I mean, with the follow-up appointments, that I, every time I see them, there's that education, that encouragement. We have, each one of us have a very special relationship with the patients. And I see um, part of what I do with them every time is to encourage them to enhance their lives in those types of ways. And there never is a judgment. Like Dr. Rowling said, when I see them, I, I tell them every time, just come back. Or if they had a slip up, I'm so glad that you are here today. Because they are so used to, I've worked in this field for 10 years, mostly in private facilities before I worked here, um, abstinence-based. And they are so used to being trained to lie, to hide, to disappear when they've made a mistake. And we don't do that here. We tell them to come home, come back. We want to help you. And if you don't show up, we can't help you. We miss our opportunity. And that's what I love about being here. We, we do not want to miss the opportunity to save a life every day. Dr. Andrick outlines their plan to train physicians and connect to the 10 primary care clinics within the area. What we talk here is very complex uh, to understand, but we are medical home for addiction. And we can do that because we are medical home for any other illness. We are federally qualified health centers, and we are here for as long as they need medical care for any type of healthcare issues, addiction no different. So we incorporated this in our primary care uh, clinics. We have 10 clinics around the Palm Beach County, and slowly but surely we are training all our clinics to treat addiction as any other chronic illness. Uh, what we talk here today is basically, again, medicalized addiction, but with this model um, of having that addiction stabilization unit to provide care for most acute phase of their illness, we accomplished evidence-based approaches in addiction that we have nowadays in this country. What is readily available treatment? So there is a door where they can knock 24-7 and seek for treatment. doesn't matter if they're overdose or they just walk in or they transfer by the family. So we have that open door for them to, 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 to start their treatment once they're ready. Anytime. Just walk right in the door. Anytime. Just walk through the door. Fire rescue, transport them here. Family, just drop them on the curb. Whatever is needed to be transported here, they're going to be accepted here. And the other most important thing is warm handoff for the future treatment. Readily available treatment and warm handoff are keys for success 
And again, complex illness, we still have only 50% chances in long-term recovery for them to reach, but no difference than any other illness in medicine, like diabetes or hypertensive. What percent of our nation who have diabetes has controlled diabetes? No more than 50 to 60%. So again, medicalization of addiction, accepting those hard facts uh, uh, as non-instant gratification field of medicine, what many accept with addiction, expect with addiction, there is no instant gratification in this illness. We are here for a long run uh, together with the patient, uh, but we will be medical home for the rest of their life and as long as they need us. Um, so we are kind of changing a little bit approach in medicine. We are challenging any existing <laughs> rules, but we did this out of desperation. We have to stop people dying uh, and um, uh, treat them with compassion. That's our first medicine that we, we give because this is the, the, the most important part for them to even uh, uh, have um, um, uh, accepting our motivational tools that uh, uh, Elaine was talking about. But in essence, medicalization uh, and um, having uh, medical professionals from board certified physicians to licensed nurses, licensed counselors, uh, to treat this illness. Um, this is the least we can do for this illness. Speak to the importance of leadership to get this off the ground. Mm -hmm. You had many leaders that came together and worked very, very hard over the course of the last three years to make this happen. Doctor, can you speak to that? Yes, I think that that's absolutely the key uh, because it took us two years to have contracts between private and public entities uh, to put finances in structure, uh, um, experts in structure of this model. Um, but this is the best example how private and public came together when communities in a crisis. Commissioner was very involved? Commissioner, uh, local county commissioners, uh, uh, CEOs of the for-profit hospitals, uh, state attorney, uh, um, healthcare organizations, leaders, everybody um, really step up. Uh, but I think in essence, all of us in this national crisis were touched by the um, substance use disorder. We all, we all either have a family member or, or a friend or coworker uh, whose loved ones suffer from this addiction. Uh, all of us know many people who died from this horrible illness, uh, life-threatening illness, and I think that put us to work together toward the mutual goal to try something different because what we had did not work the best for us. Um, so we still need the time to have outcomes to prove that this model works, but this made it most sense for us um, at present time. We don't know nothing better to do but treat addiction as any other illness. So what's next? What's on the horizon? Most importantly, if it's, like any other illness, we're looking for outcomes. Um, we don't, um, in medicine, we don't really um, do things unless we measure outcomes. Uh, and that's what we, we plan to do here. Uh, there are no really uh, uh, many evidence-based tools how you measure outcomes in addiction. So arbitrarily, uh, based on Dr. Rowling's expertise and connecting with experts in a field, we decided that we will monitor um, long-term outcomes by measuring BAM indicators, what it stands for Brief Addiction Monitoring. Brief Addiction Monitoring, or BAM, is a 17-item monitoring system covering important substance use-related behaviors to measure patients' recovery. 
and we measure our patients every three months um, regarding this tool. And we are looking in, uh, uh, for uh, protective factors to be increasing during the time and risk factors to be decreasing during the times. Um, as uh, all of our team members talk today about, we are not looking for perfection in this illness. This is uh, a long run, but we are looking if they reestablish connections with the families, did they find the jobs? Are they owning the car? Um, uh, are they productive members of society? And um, relapse and um, using drugs along that way for us means just that you need more treatment. Uh, we don't see that as a personal failure of our patients. We just see that they need more treatment for their illness. I asked Dr. Andrick, what advice you would have for other healthcare providers who wish to open an addiction stabilization unit? Addiction is mental illness and let psychiatrists train in addiction treat this illness. If we won't have this under house of medicine, we have to have physicians who know how to treat. Okay. Who would like to leave us with a last word? Let me, let me back up just a little bit because Ingrid is the one that chases people down that are on buses, in elevators. She, I think she even hopped in an Uber car. I'm not sure how this worked, but the story is somewhere out there to help them and guide them into, uh, into treatment and, and to help bring them into the fold here. This is my favorite quote, whoever asks, like, um, what's going on with those patients and how you actually dealing with this every day and every day <laughs> all i said all everybody needs is love so if you have the correct approach for the patient who are the most resistant most most depressed and they don't see any light in their life if we show them like a speck of love you could see how how much they change and they come within a three months or a year and they say hey you save our lives <laughs> So uh, this is, this is, I'm getting emotional, but this is like very important. Thank you so much. I think we'll leave it there. We've been introduced to the Addiction Stabilization Unit, or ASU, which opened this month at the JFK Medical Center North Campus in West Palm Beach, Florida. So what have we learned? We learned about a new model of care where treatment for those struggling with substance use disorder begins in the ER at the Addiction Stabilization Unit. It's open 24-7 for anyone who needs help. We learned that most addiction stabilization patients who want treatment are able to begin as outpatients. And you won't find patients detoxing at the ASU because their recovery begins with suboxone induction after they've been stabilized in the ER. As we close this episode, I would like to extend a special thanks to those innovators who developed the programs Dr. Andrick cited as helping to inspire the Addiction Stabilization Unit. Those included Dr. Mark Schlosser and Captain Houston Park from Palm Beach County, who in episode 108 introduced house calls for Suboxone. Dr. Darren Nevin from the Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, who in episode 130 introduced us to suboxone induction in the ER, and Orlando Howard from St. Vincent Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio, who in episode 121 introduced us to free Uber rides to IOP. 
It should be noted, the free Uber rides to IOP has been adopted by the Palm Beach County Healthcare District for all their clinics. I want to thank my guests from the ASU team. Those have included the Director of Behavioral Health, Dr. Courtney Rowling, the Clinical Coordinator of MAT, Ingrid Barlett, the Mental Health Counselor, Elaine Esplin, Medical Director, Dr. Anna Ferwerda, RN, Callista Oliver, and, of course, the Chief Medical Officer at the Health District of Palm Beach County, Dr. Belma Andrick. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover and the number two in resources. If you'd like to learn more about this or any other program featured on our podcast series, please contact us at team at cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 